This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever it is you're streaming. We're broadcasting tonight from the Triple R Studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined tonight by screen lecturer and programmer of Melbourne Cinematheque, Eloise Ross. Hey, Elo. Hey, Flick. And making her primal screen debut, Greta Gerwig scholar, Claire White. Hiya. Hey, Claire. Um, I, I'm so excited to have you both on. I, I feel like we need to let listeners know that this is a, a very pink scene here. <laughs> <laughs> I, did wear, I did wear a black jacket, though, so I got a bit of oppie going on. We are, of course, talking tonight about the marketing phenomenon that is Barbenheimer. And, of course, we'll be reviewing Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. I feel as though uh, this has been in the works for a long time, both this episode but the Barbenheimer behemoth. Um, Someone noted the other day that it's actually been a year since the term Barbenheimer was first floated, which seems wild to me. I didn't think it was a year. I don't Um, feel like it was a year ago. I feel like it's definitely done its dash but well, yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> thing. So I obviously don't have a marketing degree, but I did feel as though the timing of the Barbenheimer wave was just not quite right. I feel as though they really should have maybe started a week later because it was really at a peak about a week or so ago before the premiere. And then over that time, it did seem to sour a little. And I know now it's, you know, we, I feel like we're doing this almost a week late because People have already gotten very sick of Barbenheimer or Boppenheimer, as you were saying. Yeah, I prefer <laughs> Boppenheimer. Boppenheimer, very cute. And what's the other one? Oppie. Is I, that, I think I want to say for ages my friends and I were saying just saying Barbieheimer and then suddenly everyone's saying Barbenheimer. It's like the Mandela effect. We're just like, what are you talking about, Barbenheimer? The men took over once again. Yeah. I've been the term was dominated. Barbieheimer. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I... Was I think I expressed some joy that when I finally, about a week ago, I was like, oh, I'm finally going to see these films now and then I can never, I can banish this term forever. <laughs> we don't have to talk about it anymore. So you might be right, Flick, you know, I think, that yeah, was the people, time. Yeah, I think people are a little bit over it and that's fine. Look, you've only got an hour more of it <laughs> and then we will never mention it again. But it's kind of interesting. I, I 
I had thought that it was relatively like only a few months old, really. Um, and I was trying, I was digging into some of the background behind Barbenheimer, and it's been sort of linked up with the fact of you know obviously the release date being the same release date and why these two blockbusters that are at least on the surface very diametrically opposite. Um, now Nolan was initially connected up with Warner Brothers, but then he there was this announcement that they were going to be um, putting basically all of the films onto HBO Max. Did you hear about this? And he was just like opposed to that. He's obviously a cinema bro. He's just like, no, I don't. I want it to be in cinemas. And so he actually decided to um, go with. I can't remember exactly who's now coupled with. I think it's Universal. So there was this switchover, and there's a theory that they basically wanted to come up against Nolan's release of Oppenheimer, and so to release Gerwig's Barbie on the same date as a bit of a competition. I have heard this, mm. yeah. I feel like we should say, disclaimer, we have no facts No at facts. All. <laughs> it's purely um, speculation. speculation. Do not sue us. But that is the rumour on the streets. Yeah, and I feel like that, you know, if that was the case, it was done to try and steal box office from Oppenheimer or steal attention from it. Mm. But what has happened with the creation of this term Barbenheimer, but also with everyone jumping on board with it, with internet culture, meme culture being what it is, is that if that was the case, it actually backfired and, yeah. you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer have had huge opening weekends. Yeah. They're all anyone's talking about in the yeah. culture circle. Um, poor Tom Cruise, everyone's moved on to Mission Impossible. <laughs> well, Tommy did, you know, take a photo of himself with tickets to both films. He is a good cinema lover. <laughs> a holistic cinema lover. I actually really loved um, Killian Murphy's response, which was like, you know, whatever film you see, cinema wins. And I think that's a good approach for tonight to think, look – you know, you you don't need to pick a side, but I do think, yeah, you, like you're right, you're right, Louise. There is, has been, if that was the strategy that that um, Warner Warner Brothers were doing, it has backfired. It's actually led to, you know, it's counter programming, I suppose, in a way, but it's been embraced so much, um, and maybe now not so much, but there's still a bit of a buzz about it, and that's all. I know that. Barbie has done much better at the box office than Oppenheimer so far, but it's still this idea of the par- partnering. And they keep now referring to Oppenheimer as the smaller film, which is ridiculous because yeah. it's on IMAX and it's Nolan. And I think also there are, or at least anecdotally, people who haven't seen Oppenheimer yet because all of the IMAX sessions are sold out. I mean, I thought about going to see it at IMAX and it was sold out until mid-August. Yeah, that's So I I went to the Asta to see the 70mm print, which was really amazing and was packed. But that might explain why some people are holding out for Oppenheimer at this point. That's true, yeah. Yeah, Like they're intimidated by the length of it is also another reason. I hear a lot of people aren't going to see Oppenheimer. Yeah, finding three hours in your schedule, it's hard. Yeah. (laughs) People who are doing both... Both well, films in a day. I think that is actually Yeah, crazy. I did that on Saturday. Did you? And I was exhausted. <laughs> like, I just went straight to bed. I'm like, I'm... <laughs> what order did you go? Uh, we did Oppenheimer first, mm. then Barbie. But mm. I have... Because I went to the, like, the premieres of both films as well. I've technically done Barbie, then Oppenheimer. Yeah. Just one day after the other. And then I did Oppenheimer and Barbie. Without so any I've spoilers. Both. What would you say was a better Orders. combo? Like, uh, order, sorry. I think Barbie first, mm. which is controversial because I was such a gung-ho about doing Barbie second. Like, you know, it's a return to joy kind mm. of thing. But 
No, I'm with you. I actually yeah. think Oppenheim, uh, sorry, Barbie than Oppenheimer is a better, better sort of way to go because it's a strange thing. Anyway, we'll get into that. Yeah. But let's not, let's not, you know, we're putting the, the horse also, before the Also, can I just cut, say, like, <laughs> I feel like Barbie did a lot of the marketing for Oppenheimer. Mm. Like, you're just hearing so much about Barbie. I also, um, or like, Oppenheimer hardly had time to promote, let alone before the SAG strike happened. Yeah. Um, but also I just feel like because of the discussions of Barbenheimer, that is the only way people were actually hearing about the film Oppenheimer. Yeah. In response, like, or in relation to Barbie. It's so yeah. true. I mean, Barbie is marketable and it's a, you know, a famous product and it really has been pushed as this consumer item whereas mm. what does Oppenheimer have just the movie basically yeah. mm. um, well it's got it's got a stacked cast both films it have does a have a cast. stacked cast and, that's a, true. and I think both so are they very didn't well really advertise their cast did they I mean they didn't yeah. even release a picture well, of Cillian Murphy for yeah. until recently well it's an it's an interesting sort of thing because we've also got last week we were talking, of course, about the um, Writers Guild of America strike and SAG AFTRA joining that. It has, of course, impacted some of the conversations that are being had. I think it, it's going to be interesting to see what it looks like. We've had this big glut of these two blockbusters, all this marketing campaign, the Barbenheimer behemoth. Uh, it's just really interesting as to what the rest of this year is going to look like as far as actors being on the press circuit and things like that because we're not going to see that. So uh, I kind of feel like we're getting our fill of it. But we are, of course, going to be talking in depth about these two films um, and giving some background on both of the directors that are coming head-to-head over the Barbenheimer week. On tonight's show, Barbenheimer. And Greta Gerwig's Barbie, Barbie, <laughs> and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. I think I was still trying to create some sort of weird Frankenstein word there. Uh, now, Claire, you did your honours thesis on Greta Gerwig. I did. What um, was the What was the title that you? Uh, I was called the best version of yourself, Lady Bird, and Greta Gerwig's new cinema of girlhood. And what was your what was your argument? Um, so I focusing on Lady Bird, I kind of looked at Lady Bird um, as well as Frances Hart and a bit of Mistress America as well, mm. which um, uh, Greta Gerwig also co-wrote as long as with uh, Frances Hart and kind of started establishing Greta Gerwig's authorial voice as like a film auteur mm. um, with. Uh, Lady Bird, I was really excited about what this could mean as a direction for girlhood and film. Mm. Um, I kind of likened her a lot to Sofia Coppola as kind of one of the only other um, filmmakers of recent memory that kind of focuses predominantly on girlhood with each Mm. of her films. Um, And so I put Lady Bird within these recent screen histories of girlhood representation and screen from like the 90s and also the 80s and early 2000s up until the uh, late 2010s and how she kind of ruptures and uh, kind of breaks through from all these kind of restrictive tropes Mm. um, with Lady Bird and presented a kind of new cinema of girlhood um, moving forward that's kind of a bit more messy, less perfect, Mm. less pristine. Um, yeah, and in that respect, really fascinating pairing to have Gerwig involved with the with with Barbie. You know, bringing it to screen. I know that Margot Robbie actually bought the rights to Barbie, mm. and then it kind of she approached um, she approached Gerwig to work on it. So, really, kind of fascinating combination. It gives you a bit of an insight into what 
what you know what to expect. For listeners who probably are, you know, have heard of a lot of Greta Gerwig's films, have probably seen them, how would you describe her style? Yeah, because I was really intrigued leading up to Barbie about how Greta was going to approach Barbie because Barbie's been this figure of plastic perfection that seems to be perfect, which the film evidently goes into. But um, Gerwig herself, so in like Lady Bird and Little Women as well, um, I feel like she has a real tremendous focus and love for women, but also the imperfect messiness of what it means to be a woman in the world. Um, especially with something like Little Women, I think the way that she approached a story that's been told over and over again was kind of with like a really fresh lens in that somehow people were relating to Amy all of a sudden, who has been a behated character for, you know, so many years. Mm. Because the way that Gerwig kind of creates this care for her and kind of reframes and showing you is like no she's very similar to you actually Mm. and kind of she has this ability and I don't know how she does it to just reach out and pull you by the heart with like some kind of like she's able to verbalize and represent exactly how you're feeling Mm. that you've never been able to verbalize before so at the end a lot of that for me uh, was in Lady Bird at the end when she's driving around Sacramento and she's been trying the whole film to get out of Sacramento and suddenly she's realising the beauty of the place that she grew up in and that relates a lot to how I feel about my hometown in regional Victoria. Mm. And then you get to something like Little Women and Joe has this big speech about women having hearts and minds as well as this beauty, which is a quote from Alcott herself, but Greta Goig included that in. Um, because so many people have related to Joe as like this big, fiercely independent character that we've always loved. But then she ends that speech with, but I'm so lonely. Mm. And I'm like, you just verbalized something I never felt like I could say before. Mm. Um, and so to have like this kind of deep innate understanding of women and their imperfections and how they're feeling, um, and relating it to something such as Barbie, who, doesn't have a personality as far as we know and kind of or has every personality <laughs> or has every personality exactly mm. um how does how does a filmmaker such as Greta approach that mm. um and evidently she did it in a very Greta Gerwig way which we'll yes. talk about more but yes yeah I think that was interesting about her I do think that this was an interesting part of what I was not expecting about Barbie was that there is quite a lot of um Ken and explorations of masculinity, which I think will also tie into our discussion of Oppenheimer. We keep talking Mm. about Barbenheimer as these opposing films, but there are quite a lot of links. I suppose the most key link is the fact that uh, there is a question at the centre of this, and it's not so much a a spoiler because it is in the trailer. Barbie is hit with an existential crisis of worrying about death or thinking about death uh, and it then becoming a, a puncture in this perfect Barbie world. I think um, it's really interesting to have that as a starting point and listening to you, Claire, talk about Mm. Gerwig's fascination with girlhood but the kind of girlhood she puts on screen and womanhood by extension is kind of, it feels like in perfect harmony. That story seems like a perfect setup for her. She did write the the film with her partner, um, Noah Bumbuck, and I think that it it also feels very Bumbuck. Uh, script as well. Um, So let's get into it. Um, Talk us through the kind of setup. 
Um, yeah, so Barbie, we meet Margot's Robbie Barbie, Margot Robbie's Barbie, who is stereotypical Barbie, the Barbie you always think of when you think of a Barbie. And so perfect. I mean, and like, gorgeous. Yes. So, She's so good. Oh, my God. I really enjoyed her. I think I always enjoy her. Like I could kind of watch her do anything, but she is really the perfect Barbie. She's mm. also just a wonderful actor. I feel mm. as though she often, like she's so perfectly cast as Barbie. Like no one else could play Barbie. Um, Ryan Gosling is Ken. Like the casting is exceptional. But also the fact that she actually plays Barbie with a lot of earnestness. I was trying to place yeah. her tone. And I feel like she adds something more in her performance and creates a, a depth to it and I one of my standout performances sorry to sort of railroad this to be all about Margot Robbie but one of my favorite performances by her is in um Itonia. yeah and I just think she adds so much um tortured pain in that in that film and I thought she's so perfect in that that f- smile and something else happening behind this plastic smile it's just yeah I, I, I loved seeing her on screen for this she does it so well and not to bring her back to Gerwig. But um, I feel like that also comes out of Greta as a director um, because she was also an actress um, before she started directing solo, yeah. illustriously. Um, and with each of her films, like all of her act, um, you know, actors and actresses on her films, like such with Little Women and Lady Bird, they are able to pull out such these nuanced kind of performances, I feel, that, you know, there's something coming from like deep within coming out of them she's I feel like she's I hear all these interviews where she just creates this really amazing set that kind of encourages that kind of deep down um kind of dive into your character and connection to the story um but also like Margot Robbie's physicality Mm. as a doll and she's doing all the doll movements Mm. like she's like She's like getting into her car and she just like folds herself into the car. And <laughs> there's like, a lot of physical comedy in Barbie, yeah. isn't there? And especially when the dolls go up in the air, like the way they fall through the air is actually quite funny. And it does, we should say, it does open with a wonderful homage to Kubrick. Mm. Um, there's lots of cinematic treats throughout the film. Um, I do think that this is a film you probably want to watch a few times for unpacking that as well. And yeah, I, I love the kineticism of how her body moves through this. As well, yeah. Well, if I may plug, Philippa Hawker wrote a really brilliant essay about Gerwig and the physicality of her films for Acme for their current Greta Gerwig season. It's on the Acme website. Highly recommend reading it um, because, yeah, I think because being able to have those doll-like movements, like mm. obviously the world that she's created, the production design is super bright and plastic and everything sized down 23% or Barbie's 23% bigger than everything. And it really puts you in that world. But what really drives at home is that physicality of them, like got the perfect, like, you know, the perfect arch foot or like just yeah. the way they wave <laughs> or just like kind of the little stiffness of their arms a little bit. Actually, just on the topic of the world that's created in Barbie, um, apparently a, um, a reference point for, for Gerwig was um, the Truman Show. And mm. so... Um, um, and looking, she actually spoke with, with Peter Weir and had this long extended conversation to be like, how did you create that? Because she, that kind of sense of a facade and she, I heard her in an interview, I think it was on um, the screen show, talking about the fact that this idea of the painted background and mm. how there's tactility in that, but then you also want to have this flatness to it. So there's a really interesting amount of 
uh, detail in in that kind of world. And Peter Weir was talking about how they they wanted they shot the Truman Show in Florida and they just created this beautiful brightness, but it was like insanely hot. Mm. And she he didn't advise for her to do that, but I just thought they they were able to create um, this kind of hyper real Barbie world in contrast then with uh, the real world of, of everyone else. So true, and the I mean the tactility of it. And the, I guess the kind of realness or the real feeling of this plastic Barbie world is really essential to this movie because that is the reality that is being created and the world and it is beautiful. It is so beautiful to look at and so fun and so, you know, you can kind of imagine being there and it will be great. And then there is this like laborious, I mean it's, also kind of fun and whimsical, but laborious transition when they go to the real world. So, <laughs> right? But now now it's filmed practically, which yeah, I think is which amazing is, to Which is point really out. important <laughs> to sort of um, make the transition understandable mm. for these characters, Barbie and Ken, who are going into the real world. And yeah. that is kind of the point of departure where this film becomes not just about Barbie, but about something else. You know, something, yeah, Mm. and something that um, I feel as though everyone's talking about Barbie at the moment, so I'm not sure where I've plucked this from, but someone made a comment about how there are strangely, um, so Barbie's world is is kind of this hyper real, it's, you know, super um, camp, there's lots of these elements to it, but then the real world has elements of it being darker and, you know, obviously anchored to real world politics and, and gender structures and stuff like that but then you the the casting of Will Ferrell and the Mattel empire has these really hyper real kind of um tones and the more I thought about it I'm like that is actually quite a strange they uh, they kind of it's a bit of a misstep I think in how they present Mattel they kind of stick with a Barbie world approach for that and it's a bit of a confusing thing if you want to have you have two worlds of how they're constructed I think that was one small error in this film. I really, I have to admit, I really enjoyed the first 20 minutes, like mm. so much. I had such a great time. I think it was really well written, really well paced, mm. really exciting getting introduced to all of the Barbies and all of the Kens and sort of figuring <laughs> out, oh, okay, that's what this movie is doing. It's telling mm. us that Barbie is this complete character and Ken is in fact lacking somewhat in some way. Well, there's the tagline, <laughs> she's everything, everything he's, he's just Ken. Yeah. And then when they go to the real world, there's some there's some quite fun stuff. I have to say, and this is probably me just nitpicking, but when they're, they're in their fluoro skates mm. and lycra, like in Venice Beach, people look at them like they're weirdos, Margot Robbie and... Ryan Gosling and I'm like, this is Venice. Yeah, yeah. Neon <laughs> colours. That took me out of it. Colours like... should be real. Like they should be kind of applauded. In yeah, Venice people anyway. be like, wow, you guys look amazing. Like they wouldn't be leered at that much. I don't think. I mean, I haven't been to Venice Beach, but I don't know if they rolled down like you know some Kilda Beach or something. <laughs> yeah. The same thing would be happening. Like you guys are cool. But it was a bit strange. Because there is earnestness elsewhere and that these characters and Will Ferrell particularly and the way that the CEOs sort of operate Mm. is so cartoonish and so over Mm. the top and so um, obviously something that we should be laughing at. It was really peculiar. I couldn't help but feel that Barbie, which I enjoyed immensely, I have to say. I I genuinely was like this is – 
a lot of fun and <laughs> maybe I'm just watching too many dark films, but there was something truly joyful about being in a film that seems to celebrate girlhood. Um, I do have criticisms. I think that um, the things I really loved were the campness. Mm. I feel like, you know, any film that, you know, gets kind of the men's rights activists and, and Piers Morgan being worried, I think <laughs> I want to see. But I also think it could have been more radical. I feel as though they needed to lean more into that campness maybe, lean more into the queerness. Um, I Yeah, that aside, I do think the, the humour in it is really funny. I think that there's... Uh, the character arcs, I mean, in some ways, Ken sometimes steals the show. Maybe that's a criticism. I feel like he gets a lot of the funny lines. Mm. Margot Robbie, her story's a bit different to Ken's, but I, I probably wanted a bit more comedy from Margot Robbie's character mm. of Barbie. I feel as though she has such um, she's such an amazing comedic actress. I would have liked to have seen a bit more of that. Uh, I do wonder yeah. whether the, I mean, what you're saying about that you wanted more campness and more sort of um, queerness. Like, mm. I mean, the whole sort of justification for this movie seems to be coming from Mattel, from this big press machine, yeah. from Greta Gerwig saying, well, look, uh, Mattel wanted me to be subtle, but I wanted to criticise. You know, I wanted to keep the name stereotypical Barbie because it's making it a point. I wanted to bring in all of these discontinued Barbie figures because that's part of the history and I it's loved funny. all that, actually. I lo- and I loved at the end you get that yeah. kind of – that you get that history and I know that she got given all this access yeah. to, to their, their catalogue. But whether she was – you know, in order to get that access and in order to make the film mm. and in order for her and, and Bombac to have control over the screenplay, that they're justifying that they got all this power and got to do all these fun, subversive things, but really there's none of that subversion really in there. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I My initial thought after seeing Barbie was she kind of gets to have her cake and eat it in the mm. sense that there is... Uh, at least Will Ferrell, like Will Ferrell as the head of, of um, as the CEO of Barbie is the villain of sorts. And I don't think that's too much of a give. Yeah, well, maybe that is a bit of a spoiler. <laughs> but anyhow, there's, the there's a sense of suits. Yeah, like, yeah, they're men in suits. Yeah, of course. <laughs> However, it has that, but then it also tries to, to sort of undercut that consumerism. I'm, I'm not sure where I sit with it because mm. I think there's elements of it being both and, and it's kind mm. of a complicated mess. I did really enjoy it and I did feel like it was radical at the time and the more I think about it, I'm like, is it though? I mean, what was your take on it, Claire? My thoughts in this movie are complicated. Um, but I feel like what it really roots down to is that there are, to me, there are clearly two films here. There's the one Greta wanted to make and the one Mattel wanted. Like, this is so... the the influence of Mattel is so heavy in the film. And I knew that going in that this was produced by Mattel. This is a Mattel product. Um, but I didn't know it would be that much. But I was also watching an interview earlier today. I think this is the one that was on 7.30. Um, and Margot and Greta were talking about how Mattel had a lot of issues with the script and there were a lot of fires that need to be put out. And she's like, was there one that nearly didn't make it in? And they're just like they hit them with like a hundred million different little issues that Mattel had that they just wore them out. So they wouldn't be, couldn't be bothered dealing with them. Wow. So I feel like that's kind of created this, what we see as quite a radical film and making all these, um, 
jokes I'm a tell and I've never heard the word patriarchy more in a film I think <laughs> than in this one yeah which I never expect from a Mattel film but they're just kind of like we're just going to keep trying to make the wildest script possible so that they don't have the energy to shoot out any down any of those ideas which um kind of works but also I feel like it could have just taken more honing in I controversially think there's a little bit too much Ken Ah, yes. Well, I, I think I agree with you. I, I think that he he really does steal the show and it's a shame because, I mean, you've got Weird Barbie who's mm. fantastic. Kate so Kinnan. good. Love her. <laughs> There's um, Alan. Alan's got some mm. fantastic energy about him I just want or to lack of like energy. Alan. <laughs> so great. Um, they, you've got all these fantastic characters. Mm. There is a big emphasis on Ken and I get that there's a particular narrative that requires for – Keith, yeah, it, it mm. sort of requires that. I don't want to give away spoilers. But, yeah, I I kind of agree with you on that. It's an interesting thing. And I couldn't help but feel as though he gets this wonderful dance sequence, which mm. feels just felt like me, felt yeah. like to me pure cinema. And I was just like, I just feel as though that could have been Barbie. <laughs> well, yeah, so, like, Greta is a massive musical theatre fan and mm. when she's talking about her filmic – not musical theatre, it's a musical fan – and when she's talking about her filmic influences, she talks about an American in Paris, she talks about Sin in the Rain. Mm. She says that the dream ballet in Sin in the Rain is her favourite moment in cinema ever. So I'm really glad that she got to have her dream ballet sequence, but I was just thinking just then also, I'm like, oh, it would have been a big great if that was with Barbie or Barbie and Gloria. Like, I think we could have what I would love if I understand. Like, I was really excited about, you know, Ken's personal journey and what that could be. Um, But it also, I think he overpowers what could have been with um, America Ferris character Gloria from the real world to a human who was playing with Barbie and brought her out of Barbie land. I wanted more between her and Barbie and how they could help each other because mm. Gloria is sad and that's why Barbie's starting to be sad. She also, was a really kind of empty character, unfortunately. Yeah. When she had – I mean, what the kind of trailer teased about mm. the film, she was the core of that. And I think you're right, Claire, like at the sacrifice of that, what we got was, in my opinion, a really poorly executed Ken storyline. Mm. He was great at the start and I was – honestly bored by the the main narrative that mm. he was involved mm. in towards the you know in the second half of the film which so was a real I. shame especially when you think Greta Ger- you know we're, we're talking about Greta Gerwig being so um, invested in girlhood and we had America Ferrara and her daughter whose name I can't remember Sasha in the film yep. I can't remember the actress who mm. plays her but we didn't really get much exploration of her mm. girlhood. Well, they really tack – and I agree completely. They do tack that on a little bit at the end and there's these yeah, big it's like monologues. Yeah, and it's a shame because, yeah, that is really the strength of Gerwig and it's, you know, it could be a, a kind of an obvious pairing with Bar- the Barbie dialogue. I realise we're going to be – it's going to turn into a Barbie hour. <laughs> um, but I I think, strangely enough, as, as kind of – I don't know how you both feel about Barbie as the actual doll, but mm. I was never a big Barbie – person uh, or girl um, I feel like I'm surprised by how much I enjoyed the film but I think with with time there's things that I think are missing but I, I did really enjoy this immensely um, I would recommend for people to check it out if purely just for the musical numbers and some of the um, it's the really <laughs> fun and it really look I have a lot of problems with it and I have a lot of problems with the IP but I feel like it 
it is so magical in terms of its set design and its colour scheme and just seeing mm. the kind of the tactility of everything that it really does deserve to be seen. Well, Barbie is currently playing at basically every major <laughs> cinema uh, everywhere. <laughs> you are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Eloise Ross, Claire White and myself, Flick Ford. We are doing Barbenheimer, so it's now time for our, our second half of Barbenheimer. That is, of course, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Uh, The film is written and directed by Nolan and it is about Oppenheimer, who, um, of course, is uh, known as the father of the atomic bomb. Uh, Killian Murphy is in the lead. There's also an amazingly stacked stacked cast. Uh, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, Benny Safdie pops up, Uh, Josh Hartnett again. I was like, is that him? Uh, Rami Malek and uh, Kenneth Branagh even. Uh, It's too many to mention. But the film is based on the Pulitzer Prize winning book American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Kay Bird and uh, the late Martin J. Sherwin. And look, the film has gotten a lot of buzz, possibly, you know, bolstered somewhat by the Barbie behemoth. Eloise, what were your what were your thoughts on Oppenheimer? Uh, well, I guess I should say I don't know how qualified I am to talk about this because I'm not a Nolan um, person really. I haven't. Is in you don't like his films, or I haven't seen many. Oh, really? Them. Memento. I've seen Memento Inception? and some of the Batman's. I think oh, that might be it. really. Um, okay. Oh, I've seen Interstellar. Yeah, as well. Well, because that's a I'm fair a big few of space, them. Space nut. But um, yeah, I so I wasn't really coming to this with any obsession or any kind of big um, preconception about what I was in for, mm. except that I knew it was going to have interesting sound design because mm. that is his reputation. Yeah, well, as we heard in that little trailer, you, you have that wonderful sort of crackling of the Geiger um, yeah. counter. And I really, I really liked this. I really responded well to it. I have to say I was I didn't always get it. I didn't always get what was going on because there were – there's two distinct timelines and I even think there were three <laughs> um, at some point, although I've read reviews where it says there's only two, so maybe I'm more confused than I think. <laughs> um, but – and the, the – I'm trying to figure out because it's partially in colour and partially in black and white and where that stood and, you know, what those things were going because uh, Robert Downey Jr. is a character who we see – only in black and white except for in one scene, I think. Um, so in, in terms of was this well scripted and did this make a whole lot of sense, the jury's out, not just with me <laughs> but I think with other people, but I really liked that's the – the Nolan though. Okay, right, that's the Nolan. Of yeah, I really liked – I mean the acting was incredible. I really liked the sound design and the construction of it and did you, seeing sorry, what characters were, you know, thinking and everything being uncovered – in a kind of classical, dramatic, political movie way. Mm. I liked did you, it. Did you see it at IMAX or what I was your... I saw it at the Asta. Ah, oh, right. Um, okay, so on the 70 millimetre. Yeah, yeah, and it was really good. There were a couple of moments, I think, at the first two real changes where there was just a little flicker of a, a mistake, which actually <laughs> adds, to it. adds to it, I think. <laughs> it was really fun. But I... I really like this and I guess it's really hard to discuss both Barbie and Oppenheimer because of Barbenheimer, I think. There's so much that comes before these films um, and everyone has an opinion on what this phenomenon is. 
Um, I think it's. I actually love that we're in conversation with these two mm. films because I think there are more similarities than people are, are willing to sort of acknowledge. Like they, they both do talk about masculinity. Mm. They both um, feature these kind of um, play around with time in different ways and they also... Irreplaceable uh, thoughts of death. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. And so there's, it's just such a different approach to them but there are links. Yeah, in terms of thematics and explorations of um, desire versus obligation, Mm. absolutely you can see threads in both films. Well, I think Oppenheimer probably does it a little bit better um, in terms of thinking about implications of those ideas. But, but Mm. yeah, there's certainly links. And also just like as far as the cast goes, I mean, in in Barbie we do have – so many um, women in mm. Oppenheimer, so many dudes. Uh, so it's a really interesting thing how this is set up about down very gendered lines. We should mention that, you know, Nolan is a massive fan of um, 1570, which is the highest resolution of film format, um, and that I think Melbourne is the only – there's only one copy and it's at IMAX mm. – um, I think there's like maybe I can't remember how many copies there are worldwide, but anyhow, it's it's at IMAX and it's insane. It's like 18 kilometers long is the film reel, and I have to cr- construct this special um, like setup to basically play it. It's it's kind of that side of it is really fascinating. I think that's where a lot of the discussion has been in Oppenheimer. Um, Claire, what did what did you make of it? I really liked it. I have seen um, a few Nolan films. Um, not all of them, but anyway. Uh, and I found it probably, like, I, I, I was able to follow it, follow along all the different timelines. And you're right, there probably is a third timeline at the beginning when he's talking about his school days. Yeah. If, yeah. Yes. Well, that's um, actually, yeah. This, I don't think I put it together until the very end. If you think about the context of when anyway. that happens. But anyway, um, yeah, no, I really, really liked it. It also kind of seemed like Nolan's version of a Sorkin movie. <laughs> Because it's Very just talky. a lot of talking, <laughs> um, mm. but which is great. And I saw a first IMAX, which was actually quite wonderful. And the sound design was amazing. I found myself, I'm always a little bit intimidated by IMAX because of how big it is. And so when they're yeah, leading up look? to like, well, when I was also just leading up to, we can talk about this later, um, like the Trinity test, I was like braced in my seat, like not prepared for like the sound of the blast Mm. and then they did it they circumvented it in a really amazing way that really really worked for me and I'm like okay like had like I was reacting like physiologically um but then I saw it at Hoyt's on the weekend as well and the sound design wasn't as effective Mm, the the first the start of it was a bit incomprehensible after a while you could kind of like adjust in and you could understand everyone Mm. but I was just like I just wished I was at IMAX again (laughs) I've been um I've been keeping a tab of sorts on the reviews of the sea of these two mm. big blockbusters. I feel like I'm in the minority here, but I really didn't enjoy this film at all. Mm. <laughs> I um I my opinion on Nolan is mixed. I love Memento. I I really love The Prestige. I like a lot of his early stuff, and I think he has matured as a director. But I also feel as though. My hot take would be I don't think he's clever enough for this material Mm. and I think that he does a disservice to the story, which is really fascinating, like the real story. It's a three-hour film and it feels very messy to me. The the two storylines are... 
I just feel like the tension is really poorly managed throughout this film. It's three hours. You really need to think about the pacing of information. We have, you know, the possible ending of humankind at the sort of halfway point mm. and then for another maybe hour, I can't even remember, hour, hour and a half, we're then fussing about with this with kind of courtroom drama it's like two films mashed into one and I just felt as though I wish that Nolan had someone else in the room to say focus on one or be economical with this story or maybe you could do this like if you're going to make this film keep it to this I I just think the two story like the two timelines that you said Eloise Mm. for me didn't work at all and I just was thinking you have so much space in this and it's like you said Claire such a talky film but I don't think that um, I don't find that dialogue is really a strength of Nolan's. Mm. He's very good with sound design and, and managing mm. that side and, and involving the right people for that and thinking about concept. I think he's, that's his strengths and spectacle. And interestingly enough, for a film that really should be seen on IMAX, it doesn't have much spectacle, but I don't think that's a reason not to see it at IMAX. I actually did enjoy that spectacle. I think the spectacle is something different than people might be expecting. Yes. I mean, there is the Trinity test sequence and there are a couple of other moments where Oppenheimer is imagining mm. or thinking about the stars and thinking about physics and then imagining uh, other I, particles. Yeah, those yeah. were great. Those but moments. But I also yeah. think that the close-ups of all of the faces oh, yeah. are spectacle. I agree. We and have to, really work. And we have to talk about the casting of Killian Murphy. I feel as though I've loved Killian Murphy since Disco Pigs. <laughs> Fantastic. Yep. Uh, there's a theatre play and then it t- was turned into the film. Go watch it immediately. Um, fantastic actor. His face is perfect, I think, in the sense that it's so... It's so beautifully androgynous and I think that that works really well with the outsider status of Oppenheimer and I really loved that visual kind of bridge between what he looks like and he did lose a tremendous amount of weight for this role and I loved hearing about all of the detail that went into the costume design, the hat size, everything like that. I think the suit that he wears is actually the same suit that Bowie wore and I love all of those, thinking of silhouettes and I think Mm. Nolan is so good with those details. But I also just feel as though you've got Florence Pugh, you've got Emily Blunt. They are given nothing to work with. The women are just put as these hysterical sort of forces that come in and out. And it was really confusing where you've got this great speech that Emily Blunt's character delivers at the end and I I really loved that speech and I thought her performance is amazing. But I couldn't understand what their relationship was. I feel like a broken record joining Mm. this kind of complaint, right, that, Mm. like, the women didn't get enough. But it is true, even both of them. (laughs) Florence Pugh has (laughs) this this incredibly important arc, shall Mm. we say, to avoid spoilers. And I really, I mean, even one more scene to kind of understand where, what, you know, what her character was, yeah. where her character kind of fit in with the Robert Oppenheimer character would have been really valuable. And you're right, there is something to do with their family life when he marries Emily Blunt that I think he's given some really kind of genuine attention but, again, not enough. No. And maybe it's because Nolan doesn't know how. He is famously he's never bad. been good at women. Yeah, right. yeah. He's, he's such a broy director. He is, and that's why it's fascinating being up against Gerwig in this mm. way. Um, 
my, I suppose my takeaway criticism for both films is not enough women. <laughs> but look, I, I, I just found with this, I just found it disappointing. It's three hours. It's a really bloated film and yeah. yet it has so many omissions. I did think it was surprising that, you know, the effects of the bomb weren't really explored in any way. And with thinking about the weight on Oppenheimer's shoulders, I did think that there could have been something done with the victims. And I'm not saying that you have to represent this on screen. Mm. I just thought something to to talk to that history. And I'm, I'm curious, I know there's been a lot of ta- talk about how will Japanese audiences respond to this. Um, I just... I don't know, it just sat badly with me. I just thought there's so much focus on the men and there's bits in which, and again, this is a criticism of Nolan, sorry, I don't always like him that much, but I do think like some of these key scenes almost feel hammy, especially the the courtroom scene. I won't ruin it for anyone, but the finale, I just felt really flat. I don't even understand why we have that. Yeah. one at all like as mm. good as Robert Downey, Robert Downey Jr. is in this film I found it like both times I'm just kind of hard to real like realize why we should care about him what that's his what whole I mean role is it in the yeah. in the first place well that's the tension I, I think is yeah. misplaced although we let's have just have Alden Ehrenreich in the film who's the love <laughs> of my life I'd love to see him employed but other than that I'm just kind of like what's the point of this yeah and I think that's what I'm I, my point was about that kind of tension mm. not being well executed when you've got three hours I feel as though they they had the placement of of those shocks needs to be it needs to be thought through more I liked that element but I do think it could have been better handled and I don't have an answer for how, but I think that it was, yeah, it was quite strangely done and the timing of it and then the balance of dramatic kind of interest that Mm. it got. But I do feel like it added, that that storyline added something to our understanding of Oppenheimer and what Oppenheimer is going through. And so I think it it is a necessary part of of the film and of the story, especially I haven't read the biography, but I imagine it's in the biography and that this is something that was engaged with and kind of brought in Mm. to add that other element that that we needed to understand. Yeah, and I think that's always the burden of when you've got a film about a real historical figure, a real historical event, is what do you decide to include in the film and what do you decide to omit? I mean, the fact that he almost poisoned his tutor with an apple, with this, you know, apple being injected, I think that's fascinating. But, like, you have to think about what are we going to include. Like, that sounds like something to explore. <laughs> but then I, I just think that you have to make a decision as to what is included and what isn't. It was funny, that moment and another moment that you referred to earlier, Flick, where they kind of come to... A, a, the Matt Damon character, General Groves, comes to terms with the fact that this could be the end of the world, the Trinity test could be the end of the world, I dealt with with in, in a comedic sense almost. There is a lightness to them, which is very strange, mm. I think. I mean, I don't know if comedy doesn't have a place at all in this film, but those moments were a little bit odd. Yeah, I, I just think it's down to the script and the strength of the script. And unfortunately, I 
do think as though it errs towards not handling the material as well as it could. Having said that, I love Killian Murphy. I think some of the performances are amazing. I'm expecting it's going to get a lot of Oscars because it fits it. It ticks all those boxes. Mm. And hopefully Barbie does too because I think it's got some great performances in there too. But, hey, time will tell. Uh, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer is playing at all major cinemas around the country. Um, like I said, here in Melbourne, uh, it's where we have the only 70 millimeter copy in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, you can see that at lots of places, think Palace, Astor. And of course, if you want the full experience, head to IMAX. On tonight's show, we reviewed two of the biggest blockbusters of the year, both released on the same day, creating Barbenheimer, a pink and black mashup of Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. And both films are currently playing at all major and independent cinemas. Eloise, before we go, tell us what's happening with Melbourne Cinematheque. Well, I just wanted to give a shout out to this Wednesday's screening, which is the last Melbourne Cinematheque screening before uh, MIF takes over the city yes. with MIF fever. Uh, <laughs> it is a really special screening that I am very privileged to have been involved in programming where we are focusing on the work of Murata Mita, one of New Zealand's most important filmmakers, screenwriters, producers, um, who also happens to be the country's probably most important female Indigenous filmmaker. We're screening Patu, a protest documentary, and if you haven't seen it, it's so important, as well as uh, a documentary that I haven't seen called Bastion Point, Day 507. She's really interested in land rights um, and, um, you know, the kind of heritage of people mm. in New Zealand and Maori, which has the distinction of being, I think, the first solely female-directed New Zealand film. Oh, or something! It's got some great distinctive wow um, history. So. Well, that's happening Wednesday. Yeah, at, at Acme, seven pm yeah. kick off. Uh, you can listen back to tonight's episode on the Triple R website, rrr.org.au, uh, or you can subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast. Claire, Eloise, thanks so much for joining me tonight. I had such a great time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 